All right, we are still in Revelation chapter 2, and uh, we're going to be here uh, this week and next week as well, as we're looking at each church individually. And so uh, last week, we began looking at the seven churches, starting with the church of Ephesus. And uh, if you remember, with each of these seven churches, I've mentioned this a couple times, probably keep mentioning it as we go. The seven churches represent all of church history. Uh, And there's a lot of specifics we can get into about that, but just understand that it isn't just those seven churches that existed back in that day. It's every church that's ever existed fits into one of these seven categories. And I think it goes further than that because it isn't just the church, it's the people that make up the church. So I believe it's every family, it's every marriage, it's every individual fits into one of these seven categories, maybe more than one. But I think as we look at these seven churches, it's a wake-up call to us to go, how do these things apply to me personally? What do they look like in my marriage, in my family, in, in my workplace, in my life, in my community, where I, where I am been set as a lampstand to hold up the light of Jesus Christ, right? That's the purpose of the church. And we find out that the Seven golden lampstands that John saw represent the seven churches that he'll be writing to, that Jesus is writing to through John. And so the purpose of the church is to hold up the light of Jesus Christ. And it's the same purpose for every person within each church, right? As we looked at the first church, Ephesus, man, this just seemed like a great church. If you were to wander into this church, you'd be like, man, these guys got it together. Man, they love the Word of God. They don't mess around with people that are teaching nonsense or misrepresenting the Lord. They call those people out. They warn other people about them. These guys are serious when it comes to the things of the Lord. And they did have a lot going on. The problem is they had one thing that was missing, and that one thing made all the difference. They were missing love. Specifically, the Lord tells them, you have left your first love. Not that they misplaced it, not that they forgot about their first love, they left it. A choice was made, and I believe it was a lot of little choices that took them in the wrong direction. And from what we can see of the church, it would seem that they exchanged their first love. And that first love means the love of the highest order, the greatest love ever shown to them, that is Jesus Christ. They've departed from his love for the love of ministry, for the love of the work of the church, and frankly, for the love of formulas and rules and their own personal laws and all those things, that while this church had a lot going on, their fears had caused them to be a very legalistic church, loving to correct others, but not so good at being corrected. Now, they received the Lord's correction, as we talked about. The church of Ephesus after this time became known in that region as a church that loved Jesus, loved his word, and loved people. So they heard it, they received the the instruction, and they walked in it. Now today we get to the church of Smyrna, uh, which very little said, four verses. Um, But there is a lot to it. There is a lot to this church. And uh, so that's all we're going to look at today. But don't worry, I can talk a lot (laughs) on four verses. 
So, let's pray one more time, and we'll get in. We'll be starting in verse 8 today. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the power of your word. And, and as always, Lord, we just don't want to miss a thing. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would have your way in each of us today. That you'd show us how these things apply to us personally. That we would uh, just hear from you. And we submit ourselves in this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So starting in verse 8, it says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. To the angel of the church of Smyrna. Now, we've talked about this before. The word angel simply means messenger. And that can mean a heavenly messenger, but it can also just mean a messenger. And so most likely, it's not that Jesus is writing a letter to an actual heavenly angel through John. Why would he do that when he could just speak to them? He's writing to the messenger of the church or the pastor of the church. Um, Interestingly enough, the pastor of the church there in Smyrna at this time is a guy named Polycarp, who was a personal... uh, personally discipled by the Apostle John. And so John had a very close relationship with this messenger, as as the Lord is now writing to this guy that he spent years with. Now, the city of Smyrna was was very large, a very wealthy city. Uh, It really uh, prided itself on education. Uh, There were uh, libraries there, uh, this is where you would go if you wanted to be a physician of the day, that they had like the only medical licensing uh, college, if you wanted to call it that. Uh, but keep in mind, it wasn't great, right? Back in the day, being a physician there wasn't like being a physician now. In fact, to give you an example, so also in the town of, or the city of Smyrna uh, was the temple to Asclepius. And on a regular basis, the doctors, doctors, would prescribe people to go to the temple of Asclepius in order to get an, a cure for their ailments. And that cure was they would be stuck in a pitch black room all night while snakes crawled all over them. Wow. Which, which in some ways kind of makes sense, because who doesn't come out of that room going, I'm better. <laughs> Just don't put me back in that room. I feel great. Yeah, (laughs) I'm healed. And they all left feeling better. But they considered themselves to be very, very intellectually based, right? That they saw themselves as the intelligentsia of the day. Now, while this was a very large, wealthy, prominent city, it had a very struggling church within it. And uh, there's quite a few reasons for that. While persecution was breaking out all over the Roman world, uh, it was especially intense in Smyrna. Smyrna uh, prided itself not only on education, but on being a model city of Rome. And this was actually a competition that kind of took place between several cities within the Roman Empire. They didn't just want to be a Roman city, they wanted to be the leading Roman city. 
And so they would actually have these weird competitions of who could build certain temples and who would be allowed to enact certain laws even, right? And then the most prominent cities, they were kind of used like guinea pigs, you know, that Rome would go, hey, let's try this out on these guys and, and see how it works. Well, Smyrna wanted to be that city. And so they were one of the first to build a temple to the Roman goddess. And then that kind of transformed, and it actually did it fairly quickly. It didn't happen over decades. It happened over a few years. So at first, this temple is, is for the Roman goddess, and then it was kind of changed to the, a temple to worship Caesar. But at first, it, even that was like, well, just to honor Rome, to honor Caesar and the office and the power. But it didn't take long before it was worshiping Caesar as a god. And right behind that, it was everyone was compelled to prove their allegiance to Rome through that worship. It became law. That in Smyrna, you had to once a year go and burn incense on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord. And if you weren't, if you would not, you were an outlaw. Well, nobody really seemed to have a lot of problem with that. Because nobody really believed that Caesar was Lord. But it was what you had to do. It's what you had to do to get by. And they even made it clear, look, you can worship any God you want. We don't really care. Just do, do your little pinch of incense, say what you got to say, and they would give them a certificate that it was all done. And so if it came up later on, they go, oh, hey, I've got my, got my card, right? My little punch card. <laughs> That's weird. Never mind. But... <laughs> it really was. It was a punch card. <laughs> I don't think you got like a free sandwich or anything after so many. Did you? Oh, that's hilarious. Okay, well, we're sidetracking here. Yes. But so you'd get this little punch card, your certificate, and then they didn't care how you worship the rest of the year. You could be Jewish. You could be Christian. You could, you could bow to any God you wanted. And in Smyrna, even... Those of the Jewish synagogue didn't mind doing it. That wasn't the case everywhere, but it was in Smyrna. The only people that had a problem with it were the Christians. And so this seemingly innocuous law, according to Rome, singled out the Christians. And it wasn't long before Rome itself saw them as non-citizens without rights. And Rome was able to seize their land and their property. And then, if anybody committed a crime against a Christian, it was dismissed. So not only are they dealing with persecution from Rome, they're now targets by every, crim every criminal in Smyrna. Because they know they're going to get away with it. It doesn't matter what they do. You could rob these guys blind. And no, no charges will be filed. And so there in Smyrna, they were losing their property, everything was being taken from them, even their food was being stolen from them. Verse 9, the Lord says, I know your works, I know your tribulation and your poverty. And the cool thing is, even with all that, they had not given up. This is one of the few churches that there is no rebuke, there is no correction. That the Lord is saying, I know what you're going through. I understand 
the works that you've done. In other words, you're still working. You're still serving the Lord. You're still loving the people. You're doing everything that you, you should be doing in spite of all of this and in spite of your poverty. And the word for poverty there is important because it doesn't just mean a lack. It means an absolute poverty, an abject poverty. It is like you have nothing, that they have a total poverty about their lives. And I think for us, now again, it, we don't get any idea that this is what happened in Smyrna, but I think for us, when trials and difficulties hit us, we tend to back up just a little bit and go, what am I doing wrong here? Lord, am, have I made a mistake? Have I misunderstood something? Am I, am I doing things wrong or going the wrong direction? We start second-guessing everything when trials and difficulties hit, right? And again, that's not the case with Smyrna. They have just kept on going. And the Lord tells them, though, you know, I see you don't have a dime. I understand your poverty, but you are rich. And they were rich in everything that mattered. They were wealthy in faith and love and in hope. Everything that matters. They had been storing up treasure in heaven for a while. And what they have is an eternal rich, richness, eternal wealth. And the Lord says, no one else sees it. No one else knows it. Everyone else looks at you and goes, they are poor, an absolute poverty. But I'm telling you what I see, you are rich. In verse 8, Jesus describes himself to them as saying, I am the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Again, we've talked about this. It doesn't just mean the beginning and the end. I'm the beginning and the end, or the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. It's actually a term that means I'm before the beginning, I'm after the end, and I own everything in between. It's a title of ownership. And so, as he's putting this together, and even tax on the, his authority over death itself. I am the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. That he is in full authority of it all. Now again, it isn't that they needed to be reminded of these things, but I think he reminds them all the same. Just to go, guys, I'm in charge of it all. Nothing is out of my control. Nothing catches me off guard. Nothing slips by me right? And even death itself obeys me. He is encouraging them that he's the one in full power. And again, I think just telling them, I understand what you're going through. I know what you're, what you're dealing with. And they've been dealing with this persecution for a while. And it was a lot. It was no small amount. But not only was it they dealing it with not only were they dealing with it through Rome and through the criminals there in Smyrna, but also the Jewish leaders within the town of Smyrna. Verse nine, he says, "I know the blasphemy of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan." That's very strong wording. I mean, that's that's no small thing that Jesus speaks there, and he isn't speaking it about all Jewish people. He isn't speaking about all the people, even in that region. But he is saying that that synagogue that was there 
These people were, everything they were doing was for show. They had no real faith. They had no real belief. It's like Caiaphas, right? He was the high priest. He was the guy that should have been looking for the Messiah. But instead, he wanted that outward appearance of being righteous. He wanted to look holy. And he would be the one to make sure Jesus was crucified. Whose will was he doing? He was doing the will of Satan. And in the same way, those who were part of that synagogue there were coming against God's people. They were speaking and acting in blasphemy against Jesus Christ. And as Jesus says this, he's just making it clear, those aren't my people. Those aren't my kids. They say they are. They say they know me, but I'm telling you, they don't. Now, again, I think the church probably knew that. The church saw the persecution coming their way from the synagogue, from the Jewish leaders, and they didn't go, well, gosh, maybe those guys are right and we're wrong. They knew that. But they, it would have been encouraging for the Lord to go, no, you need to understand, those, those are not my people. They're, they're doing the will of the enemy, though they say things differently, though they claim to be doing what's righteous and claim to be the ones that are on the side of the Lord. They are not. Again, with all these trials, the Lord is saying, you guys are rich. It's a good reminder to us, and we'll talk about it more as we go on, but there is a richness in the church in trials. Whether that is a loss that takes place within a church body, whether it's a trial that a community goes through, or even as a country goes through, I have found that there is a beautiful richness in the body of Christ when we come together to mourn, to grieve, and to support. It's like nothing else. It is a richness. And so again, in this church, the Lord says, man, I see what's happening there. And in my eyes, you guys are rich. Verse 10 goes on. It says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death. I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. That just seems like terrifying, a terrifying thing to hear, right? These guys are already going through a really hard time. They've been going through it for a while, and, and here they get this message from the Lord, and he goes, I know things are tough. I see things are tough, but don't worry. It's going to get tougher. <laughs> what? What we're about to suffer, can we avoid that? Is there a way around that? Now, there's a little bit of a difference here. <clears throat> Uh, in, in the translation. In fact, it would have been probably better translated for uh, it to say, do not fear or stop fearing those things which you are about to suffer. And it changes it just a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit. It wasn't that they didn't see this trial coming. The idea is that they already saw it on the horizon. They saw it, this trial coming towards them, and they were fearful of what it meant. A greater persecution was headed their way. And the Lord tells them, stop fearing that. Right? That already there was a, this fearfulness about them. Um, 
There's no rebuke. There's no time where the Lord says, I have this against you when he speaks to this church. But if there's a warning, I think this is it. Do not fear. Stop fearing. Um, Fear is like a black cloud that hangs over our heads. Whether it is real or imagined, it just weighs us down. All of the concerns and the what-ifs. And again, this church wasn't compromising because of their fear. Fear wasn't directing them. They weren't you know, doing things out of fear. But I think because it is a black cloud that hangs over them, the Lord still tells them, stop fearing. Stop fearing the what-ifs. And we've all been there, right? We've all had those things. Again, they're not imagined. I mean, even if we, they're imaginary in our life, we know that they've been real in other people's lives, right? And so as we fear the things that could happen, it isn't that they've never happened to anyone ever. We're afraid of them because they do happen sometimes. And we lose sleep over them. We get stressed out about them. We get short tempers because of them. But I think there's also those times, and that's the case with this church here, is that it is a very real fear, but it's on, it's on the horizon. And to me, that's the worst. When there is a, a storm or a trial or a conflict, and you know it's coming. It's just coming towards you. That's the worst time. Once you're in it, you're in it, right? But it's before it hits that it's the most terrifying to me because there's still that idea of like, well, can I get away from it? Can I get around it? How can I minimize it? Maybe it'll just go away. That's probably my go-to most of the times. Just pretend the problem doesn't exist. See if it goes away. It's never worked. But it's that constant fear of what if. But the Lord tells them, it's not if, it's when. The storm is going to hit, and it's going to hit all of us at some point in our life. Uh, I like the fact that the Lord isn't just minimizing their fear in any way. He's not saying, oh, well, don't be fearful, shame on you, or, or toughen up, you guys. You need to be stronger, or giving them some kind of pep talk at all. He's really calling them to change their point of view, right? Yes, these are fearful things. These are difficult things coming your way. But stop fearing them. Change your mindset is what he's calling them to do. Where we stop this thing where we're trying to avoid it. We're trying to minimize it. We're trying to somehow get around it. And instead, we summon our courage and we face it. And that makes all the difference. Again, those times in my life where the storm, the conflict, the difficulty has been heading my way and I'm like trying to figure out how to sidestep it and suddenly I just go, you know what? I'm just going towards it. It changes everything. It changes the way I carry myself, what I think about, how I'm going to deal with the conflict itself because I'm not dealing with it in a fearful way anymore. I'm just like, no, we're going to get it done. We're just going to enter into the fight, whatever it might be. And that's what the Lord is calling them to do. Stop fearing it and just face it. I think it's also important to note that the Lord is not promising this church or anyone in this church prosperity or an overabundance of worldly wealth 
or health. And he's not telling them that they just need to claim the word of faith and and claim all these things that are theirs. The only promise that he gives them is it's going to go from bad to worse. And that they need to stop fearing it. And there's some pretty fearful things. It's not just a trial. He goes on to tell them that the source of this trial is Satan himself. Not just a demon. That'd be enough, right? I mean, when a trial hits us, a lot of times that's the big question. It's like, where is this from? Is it from my own bad decisions? Is it from worldly fallen men that have made wrong decisions or doing sinful things? Or is it from the sources of hell, the sources of evil? This is the worst case scenario. (laughs) And he tells them, oh yeah, Satan's going to let you guys have it. And he says you'll be tested and thrown into prison and you're going to be tried. You're going to go through all these things. Verse 10, he says that you might be tested and you have tribulation 10 days. Um, A lot of question about what 10 days means. Almost surely it does not mean 10 days. Um, A lot of people say it means 10 years. Others say, no, it actually means, uh, is speaking of the, the 10 Roman emperors or 10 waves of persecution. It, it really doesn't matter. And I think maybe that's even overcomplicating to take it that far because the Greek phrase of 10 days just means a short time or a limited time might be a better way to say it. And so what the Lord is saying is, yes, this persecution's coming. Yes, this trial is going to be upon you, and it's going to be a difficult one, led by Satan himself. But I have given it a limit. It's not going to go on forever. It is given a limit and parameters. The Alpha and the Omega has defined the start and the end. And I, th- I think, though, this is the part, though, where people are like, wait a second. Okay, if he's in charge of everything and he loves his people, why is he going to let him go through this hard time? Why doesn't he just wave his hand and make it all better? Why doesn't he not allow this persecution to take place? This is a hard truth. And it's one that, that we don't talk about enough, especially in the church in America. Because the popular teaching in the church in America is that a good Christian will never have hard times. That's a lie. And that's nowhere in the Bible. The hard truth is, is that God allows us to go through difficult times of testing so that He will shine all the brighter. And it's important to know, the testing isn't for his benefit. It isn't because he's up there going, well, let's see what these guys are made of, right? He already knows. In fact, of the church, he says, you are rich. You guys are doing it right. I'm proud of you. There's no rebuke for these guys. The testing is for everybody else to see. And when the church gets pressed hard, historically is when the church shines the brightest. And even those who are behind the persecution or a part of that persecution are the very ones to be changed because they see a difference in the people that they are persecuting. 
Again, as the body comes together in trial, in difficulty, the Lord does amazing things. In verse 10, he says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, there's two parts to this promise. So the first is, is on an eternal level, right? That at the end of it all, there is the promise of eternal life, right? And if you think about it, I mean, if the worst persecution were to take place and we had to lay down our lives for our faith in Jesus Christ, what are they really threatening us with? Heaven. Okay. I'll take that right? This place ain't that great. It's okay, but it ain't that great. On the other side of this life is a crown of life, of eternal life. So no matter what we have to endure here, it will be worth it. No one will regret the trials of this life for the eternal crown that awaits for us there. But I think the other part of the promise is for this life. That when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, the other side, there is a crown waiting for us. There is a depth to our relationship that did not exist before we entered that valley. These are roads we would never choose on our own. These are things we would never ask for God to do in our life. We would not want to see them done in other people's lives. But when they happen and we find ourselves there, on the other side of it is something beautiful, something deep and real that we did not realize. For Smyrna, the promise is, yes, difficulty is coming, but there's a plan and there's a timing to it all. That the first and the last is in charge of everything. And on the other side of that storm, the other side of that valley, man, they're going to know the Lord in such a deeper way and that there is a crown of life waiting for them. The other thing that's cool here is the word crown. So there's two Greek words that could have been used here for the word crown. And the first is the one we usually think of, of a crown that a king wears. But the one that's used here is actually the second one, which is a victor's crown uh, that when you won the marathon or some athletic event, you'd be given this wreath, a victor's crown. Uh, The other time that it was worn, though, is in a wedding. That the wedding itself was considered a victory. And so the bride and the groom would wear a crown of victory. And to me, that's just the most beautiful picture of what the Lord's saying here, is that at the other side, Jesus and his bride will stand crowned in victory. Isn't that powerful? I love that. Verse 11 says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Now it's important because that's, that's going to be mentioned with each of the churches. It isn't just this message is to this church. The Lord's saying, look, what I'm writing to every church is for every church. But let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, right? But as I mentioned earlier, the pastor of the church at this time was a guy named Polycarp who had been discipled by John, raised up in the leadership by him. And he had an ear to hear the things that the Lord was saying here. 
that while he was going to face trial and difficulty in the church that he was in, just a few years after this, he would be martyred for his faith. A man well into his 80s. In fact, the record that's given of his arrest was that the arresting officers were amazed at how old he was and how frail he seemed. That he was the criminal that they had come to arrest was this little old man. And he stood there in the arena there in Smyrna and refused to deny Christ. That he was told, just a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord and will set you free. And he said, for over 80 years, I have served my Lord. I will not deny him now. And for him, there was a crown of life. The promise of eternal life. That through these trials, man, heaven is next. And it is better to face trials in this life and enter into heaven than have luxury now and be lost forever small investment in the weights and balances of eternity. Now, in many ways, in fact, in pretty much every way, we don't face the type of persecution that Smyrna faced. No one in the United States has had to lay down their life for their faith. I take that back. Few. There have been a few. But it's not something we have to worry about, be concerned about on a daily basis. Um, But there are those in the world that certainly do face this kind of persecution. I guess for me, as I think about this, the question for us, and I, I want you guys to think through this, pray through this this week, and consider it, is what is the black cloud that hangs over your life? What is it the Lord would tell you, stop fearing that? Stop fearing the what-ifs, or stop fearing what's going to come next. And again, it isn't to say that we're to be ignorant of these things, or say that these fears aren't based in some sort of reality. There's a lot of things to be concerned about in in our world right now. A lot of things to be concerned about in our country right now. And, and And I tell you, I get it, but at the same time, my heart breaks just a little bit for all the craziness and freaking out that's taking place all over social media right now. And yeah, sure, we can be fearful about the future of the church in America. It might not be that long we face this type of persecution. And there's a lot of things we can be concerned about concerning the elections and the future of our country. But stop fearing these things. Who is Lord? Who is God overall? It isn't Donald Trump, and it isn't Joe Biden. It isn't any elected official. It isn't any government. And no one will ever be saved by any government ever. Amen. Along those lines, I found this scripture, and I think it applies very well. I want you to write this down, jot it down, put it in your phone, whatever you need to do. Daniel chapter 2. Daniel 2 verse 21 says, He changes the times and the season. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge 
to those who have understanding. That's the God we serve. And if he chooses to put a king on the throne that then will cause his people to humble themselves and pray, then let him do that. Stop fearing what is to come. Jesus is the first and he is the last. He is the one who has overcome death and come alive again. All things are in submission to him. And if he leads us into that valley, let us follow him as we summon our courage that he might get all the glory. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Lord God, we are so grateful that you're in control and we are not. That you are the one that sets kings upon their thrones and brings them down again. God, we simply